Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Well, let's continue my story. There's a remarkable moment of acceptance when one fully lets go. Suddenly the clouds part and the sun shines forth. Fear and distress vanish and joy takes their place. I was simplifying my life as quickly as possible, shedding furniture, kitchen gadgets, emptying my house in the far north of Austin, and making a move to Austin Zen Center as a resident. It was the time for me to let go, to begin to disengage myself from the snarl of my samsaric, soap-operatic life, the things that keep me anxious, agitated, harmful, and stuck in endless becoming someone. There was much to let go of all my identities, my pride, my economic and social footprint, all the pleasures I still clung to, little Johnny himself. These are the very things we commonly think give us comfort. We live in a looking glass world. Things are not as they seem. Each time I would let go of something, it was like cutting through the strings that I could not untangle through craft alone, thereby liberating me a little more on the spot. I would try my darndest, but I would start with the easy things first. Jim, my Dharma brother, one of the first Juquettes, had preceded me at Tassajara by a year. Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery in California. Jim was the first original member of the Austin Zen Center to complete a practice period at Tassajara. This inspired me to follow in his footsteps. He would still be there when I would arrive at the beginning of January 2002, the start of the next practice period for which I could still apply. In the meantime, I finished my move into Zen Center and determined to sell my house to free myself from yet more of what bound me. In September, I decided to make a trip to visit family in California, as I had not been there this year. Colin, who also lived at the Zen Center by this point, drove me to the airport, where I proceeded to security. I had just put down my backpack on the x-ray scanner and it had disappeared down the conveyor belt when a uniformed official came running out yelling, We need to shut this gate down. He pushed a button and my backpack came backward back out of the scanner. I didn't know it could do that. Meanwhile, other staff began closing a rolling metal gate into place, barring all entry. I asked, How am I going to get to my airplane? pointing in the direction in which I pictured my plane awaiting me at the crowded departure gate. Nobody's going anywhere today. After that, not one airport official would talk with me to explain this curious turn of events. 
I noticed a lot of people looking quite frazzled in a bit of panic. Well, doesn't that beat all, I thought, with a shrug of the shoulders. I guess I'll go home. It was in the taxi that I heard what the commotion was about. The driver was listening to the radio, and there were reports of a plane flying into one of the World Trade Center towers in Manhattan. I had once been to the top of one of the World Trade Towers on a visit to my brother James. I still did not realize what an errant pilot in New York City had to do with the airport in Austin and the taxi driver could provide no further insight. Back at the Zen Center, Colin, having just arrived back himself not ten minutes earlier, was surprised to see me. I told him what had happened, and he got the official Austin Zen Center TV out of the closet to try to catch some news. Holy cow, he exclaimed. He came from a family of ranchers. I waited until December to make my trip to California with the intention of staying there for a prolonged period, moving down to Tassajara right after the new year to begin the three-month winter practice period. After 9-11, the whole country had experienced a communal period of zazen. The mind had stopped collectively, and we as a nation were faced with denuded reality, things as they are heretofore unseen to most. The soap operas of our lives suddenly made no sense or appeared wildly out of proportion. The collective being present around me was unexpected and astonishing for about two weeks, until the spin doctors and pundits slathered a new layer of denial, hatred, and militarism over that raw reality for us, lest some lasting insight arise. But I realized I was moving in a very special circle of good friends, many of whom saw the moment for what it was, who were capable of examining our global samsaric condition with due deliberation. My friend Peg, who led the Live Oak Zen group, for instance, suddenly became intimately involved in the new Austin Zen Center, where she would have daily contact with good Dharma friends. Tassajara Zen Mountain Center is the monastic branch of the San Francisco Zen Center, located in the Ventana Wilderness, deep in the San Lucia Mountains, along the coast of California, south of Monterey. A 13-mile-long dirt road that is frequently washed out by rain provides the only motor access. Historically, Tassajara has been a hot springs resort since about 1860. It had been purchased as the first site of the San Francisco Zen Center about the time I had graduated from high school. To support Zen practice, Tassajara has remained a hot springs under Zeni occupation. During the warm and sunny part of the year, it generates revenue by opening its gates to the public at large. Living in mostly old rustic cabins, guests can rejuvenate themselves in the hot water that bubbles right out of the ground, blended with cold water from Tassajara Creek to produce temperature compatible with human life. The Tassajara calendar incorporates a long guest season 
lasting most of the warm and sunny spring and summer. To its guests, Tassajara is known not only for its hot springs, but for its world-class cuisine. It combines the rustic with the elegant, functioning completely off the grid, heating with wood and geothermal energy, and lighting with kerosene, yet dining with real cloth napkins, French presses, crystal glassware, and five or maybe four starish weight monks. Guests also understand that they are at a monastery which permits no late-night partying and which, while offering corkage, does not sell alcohol. Tassajara has an initiation tradition for monks coming in at the beginning of a three-month practice period, a kind of five-day Zen hazing called Tangario. Tangario has an ancient history. Buddhists are not renowned proselytizers, quite the opposite. Buddhist monks and nuns generally teach only if asked, and only if the would-be student shows due respect for the three jewels. In the forests and mountains of China, this assumed a new dimension. If a young man knocked on a monastery gate, he would routinely be told either that he was not worthy of monkhood or that there was no room for him. He would then wait, meditating at the gate, often for days, to demonstrate his fortitude before the monks would relent and admit him. This is roughly the origin of Tongario as I understand it. With time, perhaps with the ordination of large numbers of monks, this process became more formalized. At Tassajara, Tongario consistently lasts five days and nights. The monk actually sits in the zendo, receives meals in the zendo, but is given a real bed to sleep in from 9 at night to 3.50 the next morning. Otherwise, the would-be monk has to be on his allocated cushion, facing the wall, except to use the restroom, never bathing or shaving, while other established monks come and go into and out of the zendo to sit zazen, practice chanting and ringing bells, and to clean the zendo, which proved to be a little too cheerful for my taste. Also, because monks arrive just prior to the practice period, there is generally a small group of Tongarians at the same schedule. There were about 15 of us, the women sitting on one side of the zendo, the men on the other. Tongario is perhaps the most difficult thing I have ever done on purpose. It was impossible to actually sit zazen the whole time, Apparently, nobody ever does. I would start off okay for a few hours, then would have to relax and think about something, remember favorite songs, daydream. Then I would have to establish some policies. If you find that your mind has drifted away from the daydream, just bring it gently back letting go naturally of whatever distraction has arisen and returning to the daydream. Later, I would return to actual zazen for a couple of more hours, then try to recall my most interesting distraction thus far. 
with my meal, I would drink as much liquid as possible so that I would have to go to the restroom more often and then drink as much water as I could on the way back to the zendo. I would furtively glance at the women Tongarians facing the wall in their baggy robes on my way back to my seat, the greatest external thrill I could squeeze out of the day, except maybe for lunch. The women seemed much stiller to me than the men I was sitting next to, certainly than myself. Finally, just short of 120 hours of this, a voice congratulated us, asked us to walk up the hill to the hot springs, bathe, to put on clean robes, and to join the practice period as full-fledged participants. All 15 of us had sat it out, though I would learn of would-be monks of the past who had given up and had gone home in a huff and with a sigh. The Tongario monks were given an additional early morning duty for the remaining of their first practice period that they were to take turns performing. They were to light all of the kerosene lamps that illuminate the many paths monks use in the pre-dawn hours, most especially to get to the zendo before 4.30 zazen. This arduous task entailed getting up at 2.50 to fumble around with wicks and matches, a miner's lamp strapped to the head, trying to protect feeble flames from the wiles of the wind. Making room for the guest season made the narrow valleys of Tassajara cold and dark during the practice periods, with frequent rain and sometimes snow. Since most of the housing derived from pre-Zen summer occupancy-only era, it was largely unheated and uninsulated. Many monks had to sleep in blizzard-grade down mummy bags to keep warm, as inside temperatures were seldom a degree or two above outside temperatures. One can sleep like that, but it made getting up in the morning most difficult. Some of the rooms were heated geothermically through water pumped from the hot springs. Luckily for me, they had a rule that those above 50 years of age would be given priority in having heated housing. So, except for a couple of weeks when the hot spring water pump malfunctioned, I experienced my first blast of cold air of the day only after I opened my cabin door in the morning. The zendo, where everybody collected before 4.30 every morning, was, for its part, inadequately heated geothermically from the hot springs, generally to about 15 degrees warmer than outside temperature. The monks wore many layers but were prohibited, according to Japanese custom, from wearing hats during zazen. The warming rays of the sun reached the base of the narrow Tassajara Valley, where we dwelled only late in the morning and then withdrew early in the afternoon. The bright spot was that we had full use of these wonderful hot springs throughout the wee months, where we would soak our chilly bodies to the bone in the warm waters welling up from the depths of the earth. All the monks at Tassajara were required to wear robes. 
For the ordained priests, these had multiple layers draping elegantly with huge sleeves. We lay monks could sleep an extra ten minutes in the morning for the simplicity of our clothing. We just had the lay robe and whatever street clothes we chose to wear under it. The lay robe has much more modest sleeves than the priestly equivalent, though I rarely could walk through the dining hall without catching a sleeve on the back of a chair, often with a clatter. Lay robes also generally fit very poorly, lending the monk a dumpy appearance, while priests' robes are tailored. Although I couldn't help but noticing that many of the lay women managed to make strategic adjustments and alterations to complement their figures. Mine fit mine like a buffalo hide. All meals were served Orioki style in the Zendo throughout the practice period. Rotating serving crews were set up and trained. The serving crews learned to work like clockwork, coordinating not only their movements in the Zendo. For instance, servers walk in unison up each aisle of the Zendo, entering and arriving at the end and beginning serving at the same time. They also coordinate their activities with a drum and bells at the onset of mealtime. I had first noticed how systematically the servers' pots were arranged at the staging table while entering the Zendo late at Green Gulch, and it occurred to me then how it was that the Japanese made such good cars. For my very first appearance on the Zendo floor as server, I had forgotten to take my hat off to everyone's stifled amusement. Soon I became very fond of serving service to others. Turns out to be a powerful practice. Not only does it focus the mind attentively on every detail, but it cultivates a fluidity and adaptability to circumstances. The key is that you have to take complete, utterly selfless care of the other and respond to any mishap, such as soup spillage or chopstick droppage, immediately with no thought, no judgment, no blame, only service. I would one day discover that acting as Jisha, a senior priest's attendant, is the same way, but much more personal in that you learn a particular person's quirks. Communication with the outside world was restricted to a funky phone connection and a mailbox located at a little house at the head of the 13-mile dirt road into Tassajara. One phone in a kind of wooden phone booth was shared by everybody at Tassajara, except for the business office. It communicated via a radio relay on top of the mountain ridge, and when it worked at all, the connection was invariably very poor. Traditional snail mail was the most reliable. It would arrive and be sorted alphabetically whenever our supply truck made the long trip into town. I had been using email for over 20 years by this time, but surprisingly experienced the forced reliance on these more archaic forms, less as a burden and more as a relief. Things are not as they seem.